joy to be with you today. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4 asks several times, when those who come behind you see what you have done here, and they ask, what does this mean? Then you will tell them. And it underlines the importance that we have markers in our lives that not only remind us and remind others, but sometimes provoke people who don't know anything about what happened to ask those questions. And uh, the early summer of our calendar is filled with those kinds of markers. We have Mother's Day and Father's Day and uh, uh, Independence Day and uh, it seems to be full of weddings and um, graduations and open houses and all of that. Michigan has a unique emphasis on open houses for high school graduates. I never knew about open houses until I became a youth pastor um, in Michigan and uh, our youth ministry kind of exploded in growth. We had 400 students in our youth ministry in Adrian. And um, at open house season, my son would sometimes say, who at that time was about five years old, Dad, do we have to go to any more outhouses? Um, because they were all outdoors. <laughs> and uh, I said, no, it's not an outhouse. It's an open house. And he said, it feels like an outhouse. we got to... And, and the reason why he was a bit weary is because we would sometimes hit 10 of them in one day. I remember one Sunday when they had them, and between the morning service and the evening service, we hit 10 different houses. Our church staff all got in the church van, and we got a map of Lunaway County, and we charted out who had the best dessert. We'd save that one for last who had the best Mexican food, uh, you know, who had the best hospitality. And so we charted a whole design and spent the entire afternoon from Sunday morning service to Sunday evening service. It was hard to stay awake that Sunday night, uh, but a delight in fellowship. We have these kinds of markers, and, and sometimes we kind of minimize them. We have the 4th of July, and we begin to forget what it was all about. This passage warns us and encourages us that when there are significant things in our lives, especially that God has done, we need to find ways to remind ourselves and others that they happened and that they are powerful opportunities. The incident before us is Joshua has just been appointed the next leader. Moses has died. It's now Joshua's job. And they're about to go into the promised land. It's been 40 years since they left Egypt. There had been an earlier attempt to come to the promised land, and we know the story of the spies that came out freaked out because there were giants in the land and, and had no faith and said to Moses, they're going to wipe us all out if we go in there. And the Lord said, okay, stay in the wilderness. 40 years until an entire new generation. As a matter of fact, the story following this is the story of all of the male children and, and adults going into the land, they all had to be circumcised because after they left Egypt, in the wilderness, no one else was circumcised. And so there's this incident where the entire nation has to be circumcised before they go into the promised land. And so it's been 40 years, and uh, it didn't have to be 40 years. It could have just been two weeks. But 40 years out wandering in the wilderness... 
um, because they didn't trust God, because they didn't obey the Lord. Um, and even in that disobedience, God was faithful and showed him himself very strongly. But now we come to a place where Joshua is now the man. And as a part of this new leadership, God wants to show Joshua, he wants to show the priests, and he wants to show the entire nation that his hand is on Joshua just as it was with Moses. And so he brings them to the Jordan River at the season when, because of the rains, the Jordan River overflowed its banks. And when he gets there, they need to cross over. And the Lord uh, says to Joshua in chapter 3, verse 7, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they may know that I will be with you as I was with Moses. So he tells Joshua very clearly, something special is going to happen. Pay attention. And as it does happen, uh, I have a purpose behind it. And I want to affirm your leadership, and I want to pull this nation together for the struggles that are ahead. And he tells them what to do. He tells them to get 12 men and to get the priests and to line them all up and have them step out into the water. And when they do that, the water will be held back up at one end of the river into a pile, and the rest will dry out, and they will walk across on dry land. A little reminiscent of going across the Red Sea. Kind of people who had talked about, but weren't there, by the way. They had heard the stories from their parents that this had happened to Moses, all of a sudden they get to see it's happening again. Only now on a little smaller venue, but nonetheless miraculous. So in chapter 4 it says, When the entire nation had finished crossing over the Jordan, the Lord then said to Joshua, Now select twelve men from the people, one from each tribe. Command them, Now take twelve stones from out of here in the middle of the Jordan, and place them where the priest's feet had stood. Carry them over with you, and lay them down to the place where you camp tonight. And Joshua summoned the twelve men from all the Israelites he had pointed from each tribe. Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God, through the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take a stone on your shoulder, one for each of the tribes of Israelites, so that, and again, here it is, under, I have underlined and highlighted and marked, so that this may be a sign among you, and when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off in front of the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the Israelites a memorial forever. Israelites did as Joshua commanded. They took up the 12 stones out of the middle of Jordan according to the number of the tribes of Israel as the Lord had commanded Joshua and they carried them over to the place where they camped and laid them down there. Years ago I took a class on educational psychology and in that class we were told that there are three basic ways that we learn. There's formal education, there's informal education, and there's non-formal education. Formal education means that there's a curriculum, a teacher, a classroom. You take the class, you graduate, you've been educated. 
informal education is when you look up on YouTube how to change your headlight. And you've got pictures there, and you learn how to change your headlight. YouTube is great. Man, what a resource. But non-formal education is what happens when you learn something that there was no curriculum, no classroom, and no plan. But you learn it nonetheless. An example of that is you are standing on the street corner waiting for a bus... It rained the night before, and so there's a puddle in front of you, and a car comes speeding by. You've just been educated. <laughs> Most of what we know comes through non-formal education. It's not through official lessons. And God is a specialist in leading us through non-formal education. In this situation here, we have examples of God using all three levels in order to teach his people a terribly important lesson. Officially, of course, God brings them to Jordan, brings them at a specific time when it says it was the season the Jordan was overflowing its banks. So it wasn't at the dry season when the Jordan becomes a little puddle. It was at the heavy rain season where it's wider than it ever is. And so it's at that point that they came. Nobody could make a story and saying, ah, you know, all that story about going over on dry land. The water was so low, they're walking on top of dry rocks. That wasn't the case. God specifically sets it up. He wants the lesson to be learned. He wants the story to be right. And he wants everyone to be a part of it. And Joshua takes the lesson. He learns it well. He obeys the Lord. Just as he learned from Moses, it's better to obey the Lord than it is to not obey the Lord and to trust him. And if any of you have ever been at a place of new responsibility, uh, you know that uh, most of you are had a heightened moment of awareness because you want to get it done right. You've got this new responsibility. You haven't done it before. And you want to make sure that you're doing it the best you can, and so you're paying more focused attention, and Joshua is in that mode. And in that mode, the Lord speaks to him, and he gives the instructions, and everybody comes along, and they lay it. Formal markers in our life, we all have them in some way. If you got married, in our culture, you get a ring, a band on your finger. And uh, every time you wash dishes, maybe you take it off, put it on the counter, so it doesn't, you know, get in the deal or whatever. But every time you see it, I hope it's a reminder of the covenant that you made at an altar, hopefully, if not before justice of the peace, where you made some promises. You made a contract. And that holds you, hopefully, to the conditions and reminder of that contract. I went on a sabbatical, Pastor Mike, a few years ago. And um, I happened to... Um, stumble on an opportunity to go to Israel. It wasn't part of my plan, but somebody called and said, hey, uh, we've paid for these two trips to go to Israel. We can't go. Uh, why don't you and your wife go in our stead? I went, wow, I happen to be starting sabbatical when that happens. That'll be marvelous. And so wife, my wife said, I don't want to go to Israel. Somebody might get blown up over there. And I have no interest on in going. 
why don't you take Jason, our oldest son, who's a minister? And so my son and I went on the first and only trip that he and I have taken together in our life, and we went to Israel. And it was fantastic. Before that trip, if anybody would have asked me, do you really want to go to Israel? I'd say, nah, I'll watch Nat Geo, and I'm fine. But after I went, I became an evangelist for trips to Israel. Uh, there's nothing like standing in the place where the Word of God describes and the, the, the stuff that went on. And, and it, the, the, it changes the stories from two-dimensional to three-dimensional. And you begin to understand that although Jesus is called a carpenter, he was probably more of a stonemason because they didn't build a whole lot out of wood. There's a lot of wood around there. It's mainly stone. Uh, and you begin to see what it was like to crush the grapes. You see, you see how important rain is. Where we live, we have a saying, what? Rain, rain, go away, come again some other day. Because there are times when we get too much rain. Not now. We, we'd kind of like some right now. I know the grass at our camps are all turned brown and crunchy and this heat wave and all the rest, so it would be nice to get some rain. But in general, in Michigan, we have times and seasons, maybe back in May when we were just getting deluged with water, we're saying, all right, enough of the rain. When I was in Israel, one of our tour guides said, I hear you have this saying in America, rain, rain, go away, come again some other day. He says, in Israel, no one would ever say that. Anytime we have rain, it's time for a party because it's so dry. And so you begin when you read the scripture, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs for you. It's an entirely different picture when you're in a semi-arid desert type of land where you begin to realize, man, if that deer doesn't get water, it's in serious trouble. And uh, around here we say, hey, you know, there's enough weeds he can eat to keep up with it. You know, what's the big deal? The deer's thirsty. No, it's life and death. And he says that my soul pants for the Lord. And so I began to get these wider dimensions and understanding of the nation of Israel and the, the whole strategy of where things happened and why they happened to look out over the valley where the really big battle is to come and and to realize that it's in the same place where, you know, the prophets uh, tempted and taunted Elijah until, you know, he, the prophets of Baal and he ends up killing them all. And God answers with fire on the wet sacrifice. And you're standing in that area saying, man. And all of a sudden you see and you hear. While I was there, I, I bought a ring. And it's a cool ring. It's a little spinner ring. Uh, so when I'm bored, I can play with my ring. Um, but on the ring, it has in Hebrew, um, I am my beloved's and he is mine. From Song of Solomon. And I felt the Lord say, you need to have that. You need to remember that we are each other's. And so I bought it and I wore it. And it's interesting to me how often... When I'm in a place where there's a person who's Jewish and who reads Hebrew, sees my ring and sees those Hebrew letters on it, they assume I'm Jewish. And they'll step up and they'll say something to me in Jewish. 
And I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm just a hillbilly. I don't know any of that stuff. And he says, oh, but your ring, what's that all about? And I say, wow, that's just like here. When they ask in times to come, what is that all about? I have an opportunity, and I share the Lord. I share about going to Israel, my love for Israel, and how it was increased because I spent two weeks there, and it was just an incredible time, and got to bond with my son after he had left home and has his own family, and we'll never forget that time together, and, and to see the very place where Jesus died, and where the Messiah came, and be able to talk with people about that. So we have these formal markers that are terribly important to us. And as um, the older generation, which most of us here seem to be, we need to remember that we have a high responsibility to make those markers continue to stay fresh. So like this week at the 4th of July at family camp and our southern camp, you could tell that the younger people at the camp had no awareness, really, or of the need to celebrate the 4th of July. As a matter of fact, a couple of band members said, you know, I, I don't even know those songs, patriotic songs, you know. We're here to worship the Lord. Why should we do that? And I sat them all down and said, guys, you need to remember. I had time for an education. And that why we do have much to be grateful for America may not be a holy nation. There's an awful lot of wrong and, and things that need to repent of and need to continue repenting. But we have been a blessed nation. And God has his hand upon us. And we better maintain a sense of humility and gratitude lest that escape completely away. And so we added at the Wednesday night on the 4th a pledge to the flag and a pledge to the Christian flag and pledged to the Bible and sang patriotic songs and, and then entered into worship and sang, Lord, thank you for this land that I love. Help us, Lord, to be agents of salt and light to keep moving it toward you, Lord. If we don't do that, it will disappear. And that happens on so many different arenas. And that's why it's important that we have a conviction about markers. Now, don't get over crazy about it, you know, putting markers about everything that ever happened. The more markers you have, the less they mean. But those significant markers are, are holy moments and times, and what can make them holy is the way that we approach them. Not with fear, not with dread, but with opportunity. There's a um, movie production company. I don't know who it is. I probably should research it. But the end of some television shows, when they're doing the credits, there's a flash on, and there's a tree and a little guy in a shadow, and in the little voice says, what's that mean? You may recall it at the end of some shows. As soon as that happens, I say, there is somebody involved with this production that must be Jewish, because they're quoting scripture at the end of the movie. What does this mean? And they're feeling somehow that their artwork is a part of a tool of messaging. And I'm thinking, wow, that's kind of cool. I need to find out who that is and why they're doing that. I haven't done it yet. But here Joshua follows through. What's this mean? They set up the stones. 
on the high rock. Now, there's an interesting thing that, that unfolds here because it's not only the formal education of, of, of going through the direction and the whole process, but it gets passed along informally by the generation of a leader from every tribe. And so the leader from every tribe has to go into the place where the priest stood with the ark, and each of them have to get a rock that's big enough. It says that they put it on their shoulders. So it wasn't just a little stone. I'm thinking it's probably the size of at least a basketball or bigger. And they put it on their shoulders, and they carry it out of the bottom of the river, and they pile it up, 12 stones. So this next level of, of, of informal education is that they are beginning to learn their load and their responsibility. Their very participation was not something that they planned. God did not tell them anything. Joshua did. But in their obedience, they began to learn some things. They learned that that rock was heavy. They learned that they should be obeying Joshua. They learned that they were a team. They learned that they had a responsibility for messaging the next generation. They had to cooperate together to figure out how are these 12 stones going to pile up? All of that. And so the very process of participating, they learned. When uh, we, I was privileged to be pastoring in Northville, uh, Michigan, uh, we, did a, we did a large addition to our church, and part of that addition included um, offices. Before that, my office was in a little um, school mo mo uh, mobile building kind of thing that we put outside because the area I did have an office needed to become classrooms. We were growing so fast, and so we gutted it all, and we are out in this little um, mobile office, mobile home trailer kind of thing. And so when we, we built the new offices, one of the things, and it included with that, was a gymnasium and, and more Christian education space and all this good stuff, a, a new corridor that led uh, all the doors directly to the sanctuary. It was... It was a great and, and challenging deal. It was a $4.5 million project that, praise God, we, we had a great plan. The plan worked well. And two years ago, it was paid off completely. Uh, the church never had a burden uh, under that debt. That's another whole long story. But in order to dedicate that, I, I thought, Lord, we need to do something that is more than simply a plaque on the wall. We need to do something that everybody has a memory doing. And it came to my idea that we should have everybody write their favorite scripture verse and a declaration of faith in the building. And so before we put the carpet down, we gave everybody pens and markers, and we said, next week, the carpet's going to cover all this floor. But this week, we're... Did you? Ah, all right, great. So we said, everybody go to a place in this room, in this building, that you will remember that's, that's special to you and write on that floor. And uh, they did. They scattered all over with the markers, and as they came through, it was I just came to tears. Everywhere you walk, you'd see mom's you know, writing, this is the place my kids are going to learn about you, Jesus. You know, Please let your word be a light to their feet and, and the path. And I'm quoting scripture here. Everywhere in that building, 
that was just graffiti of holiness, graffiti of faith. And to this day, when I go in that building and I walk through, I think about who wrote what. And the people who wrote that participated. And sometimes somebody will call me and say, you remember when we did that? And this is what I wrote. Not too long ago, they replaced the carpet in my office. And the present pastor discovered the blessing and and the words that my administrative assistant and my wife, they just covered the floor of my office with blessings. What an incredible opportunity to do that, to continue doing that. It wasn't corny. It wasn't whacked out. It became a really holy thing to participate in. I hope that when you have experiences and opportunities that you will say, Lord, how can I mark this day? How can I mark this opportunity? Now, lest any of you think I'm just kind of advocating for some kind of weird thing, what happens when people accept Christ? What do we do? We call them to baptism, right? Baptism is a way to remember and to mark. How many of you remember being baptized? Huh? I don't know anyone who was ever baptized who forgot it. Because there's something about that moment that includes every part of who you are. Even being afraid of water heightens your ability to remember. I remember being baptized because I had resisted it because I knew I wasn't sold out to the Lord. And I didn't want to lie in front of people and before God. And so every time my mom would bug me and she'd say, Junior, they're having baptism coming up. You need to be baptized. I'd say, oh yeah, that would be great. I'd go to the class, and then I'd pretend I got sick. And I'd say, it wouldn't be good for a sick person to be in the baptistry. I'll do it next time. And I'd avoid it. My best friend and I, Dickie Kaufman, both of us church kids, grew up in church, knew every... We probably knew the church building better than most people because we played hide-and-go-seek in every part of it. On Sundays, we would have this tradition... After the morning service, we would ask our parents if we could go to the other friend's house for the afternoon, and they would bring us back that evening. And we did that a few times, and then we realized, hey, I know what we can do. You ask your folks if you can go home with me. I'll ask my folks if I can go home with you. And when they leave, we'll hide, and we'll just simply stay and hang out at church all day. And we walked across the street where there was a the big toy store with the big giraffe, Toys R Us, and we would buy a cardboard box full of Whoppers. <laughs> that would be our lunch for the day. We would sit in the, in the alley behind that church, eat Whoppers. It was heaven on earth. But we both knew that we were not fully sold out to serve the Lord. And I remember when it happened, and Another story of how I got there, but yes, it's time for me to be baptized. And I remember our church had a basement below the sanctuary, and the changing room was down below, and you had to come up the stairs to the baptistry tank. was kind of set off on the side like this. And I remember walking through underneath the building in the basement in the fellowship hall, and there was my friend, Dickie. And he looked at me, he said, are you really going to do this? And I said, yes. He says, well, you know what this means. 
And I said, yes. What it meant was he and I were no longer going to be friends. Um, you know, you have friends where sometimes you complete each other's sentences, you know each other so well, or even better friends that you don't have to say complete sentences. You know what you mean? We were those kind of friends. He and I both knew the gospel in and out. We'd been to vacation Bible school and camp and everything else all these years and, and memorized scripture so we could win bicycles and our, everything. Our life was inundated because his dad led worship for the church and my dad had the keys that we got there early. He opened the doors and we stayed until everybody left and my dad would lock the doors. And so we were church rats, you know. And, and uh, at that moment when we were at that crossroads, I said, I said, Dick, it doesn't have to be that way. You can come too. And he said, no, not yet. And that ended a friendship. I knew it would end a friendship. So my being baptized as a, a, a young man, high schooler, I knew the price that I had to pay. I was losing my best friend. We were cordial. We weren't angry or whatever, but we were no longer buddies. It was a price to be paid. I remember going up the stairs, being afraid of getting out in front of everybody. And the lady had been baptized in front of me and everything was wet. And when I stepped out on the first step, I slipped and I had a choice. I either was going to fall backward or dive into the pool. So I dove in. And I remember my pastor grabbing me by the hair of the head, pulling me up out of the water, and he says, we have an eager one here. <laughs> I remember like it was just this morning. That's what baptism should be. That's why when somebody says to me, well, you know, I was baptized when I was an infant. Um, should I be baptized again? I simply say, do you remember it happening? And if they say, no, I don't remember it, then I said, the purpose of baptism is really to be your initial powerful lesson that you have died with Christ and you are living in resurrection power. If you don't remember that, you need to get baptized. I don't argue about what background they were or whatever. I argue about the fact of what baptism is. You need to remember it happening because those kinds of memories are critically important. The next lesson here that happens, oftentimes people who read this passage, they miss. Um, and it's easy to miss because this is one of those stories, if you've been around church, you've heard it over and over again. And so as you start to read it, you stop reading and you scan. So let's go back to uh, verse 9. It says, And Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest of the bearing of the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. What? We know about the 12 stones, the 12 guys, one from every tribe, put up on the, on the hillside, and everybody who walked by always said, oh, this is where they crossed over. This is what that means. God's still with us. He provided all the great lessons of the official pile of stones. But out in the middle of the Jordan... Joshua takes and piles up 12 stones and leaves them in the bottom of the Jordan. And the water comes back over, washes all over it, and no one knows that they are there 
except for a few old-timers who saw him do it and Joshua. Now, why did he do that? God didn't tell him to do that. It wasn't part of the instructions. And so in order to understand that, we have to have a little bit of sanctified imagination. We've got to have a little bit of a sense of saying, what do you think? What was happening here? What would I be doing if I did it? And, and my sanctified imagination says, Joshua wanted to mark something that was holy to himself. Something that when everybody else was looking at the pile of stones up on the, on the side of the bank, Joshua would turn over and look in the water. And he'd have that moment where it was just him and the Lord. And thank God you did this for me. And I know that it's there. All of us have secret moments in our life. I hope that you intentionally make those secret moments memories that direct you toward God rather than memories that you hope God wasn't looking. I have a friend who... Um, his dad was in the Navy. And uh, his dad would tell him stories of all these ports that they went to and, and all the great times that he had there. And when his dad died, his dad wasn't a believer. Um, it was my friend's job to go in and clean out his stuff. And to his horror and um, tragic experience, he discovered that all of these ports that his dad had gone to, that one of the things that his dad did is he would buy children as prostitutes and abuse those children and take pictures of him with them in horrible situations. When my friend found those, it, it nearly pushed him over the edge personally. He's in the middle of grief. His dad has died, and now he discovers the secret his dad had. What a horrible secret to discover. We spent a lot of times, a lot of early breakfasts, like you mentioned, just saying, how can this be? I don't want this memory of my dad. Like it or not, our sins will find our, us out. And like it or not, our private devotions will have an impact. Our acts of righteousness that are only seen, we think, by us will have an impact. Last time I was here, I told you about my dad and, and his Bible and the impact that it had and how I was pastoring, telling the story about my dad and his Bible and his lunch bag. And, and, and what happens? A guy who had accepted the Lord just a year earlier comes up and says, I know him. I saw that happen. Did you know that he read his Bible every time it was coffee break? And because of that memory, the Lord used that to draw my friend to the Lord. And I got to be part of that. Are you making those kinds of markers? You never know how and when those markers will have impact. My sanctified imagination goes a step further here. I believe a time comes when there is drought in the land. And some people are saying, we got to cry out to God, the Lord will bring rain, it's going to be a good thing. 
He always provides. He brought us out of Egypt. He led us across here on dry ground. These rocks remind us God has been with us. He's going to be with us in the future. That's what these stones mean. And eventually there's a group of people who say, are you kidding? That's just a bunch of old wives' tales. That's, that's a drug of the leaders to try to get you to stop being upset. There's no truth to that. There happens to be 12 boulders set up there. Big deal. Yeah, there were 12 tribes, so let's make a story about it. Yeah, sure, why not? You know, there was the good story about Moses going across the Red Sea. Let's make up a story about Joshua. Hey, would you like a story made up about you? And the cynics begin to grow. But the drought continues to come on. But there's a few old-timers who are looking out in the river. And they're remembering that there was another set of stones. And they say, you know, there was another set of stones. Joshua put them out there somewhere. And as soon as they say that, there's a an atmospheric change in what's going on in this difficult time. The drought is continuing. Discussion now is, is there really a God and does he really act? And little by little, as the water goes down because of the drought, out in the middle of the river, there's a little white cap. And the old timers are caught in a quandary. How do I really pray? Do I pray for the drought to stop and the river will fill back up and we'll never know for sure if those rocks are there? Or do I pray, let the drought continue until we can know and discover it's true? And my hunch is that the old timers were more hungry for truth than they were for water. Because truth will sustain you when everything else fades away. If you don't have a hunger for truth more than you do a hunger for your belly, you're in trouble. Because truth will sustain you when nothing else will. Truth will sustain you even to the point of death itself. That's why Job could say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Trusting in the Lord is more important than living for people who've come to know him. And that gives them a strength to face the worst of this world's stuff, the worst of the enemy's attack, the worst of of the disciplines that God may put upon us. Knowing truth, loving truth, will give us that kind of courage. I remember pastoring in Northville, a young lady who had been my neighbor when I lived in Detroit for a season, and we had led her and her living boyfriend to the Lord. And uh, long story, but incredible, fancy you know, things that happened, and the joy of the Lord. And when I became pastor in Northville, we lost connection. And um, here, about five years later, who walks in the door but, but this young lady? And um, she is clearly distraught. She's overwhelmed. She comes up and tells me, I just saw the doctor last week. He says... I have um, breast cancer, and I need a double mastectomy as soon as possible. And I said, we're going to pray about that. And she says, oh, I, w- would you please, please? And 
from that moment on, any time there was any services at church, she was there. She was sitting in the front seat. And we would pray over and over until the day came where she had to go in for the surgery. She had the surgery scheduled on a Monday, and she went. I went to the hospital with her to pray with her before the event. They did a couple of pre-surgery tests, and they said, wait a minute, something doesn't quite look right. And they discovered that the cancer was completely gone. Completely gone. And she came back to church rejoicing, our whole church rejoiced. But within six months' time, she disappeared. She wasn't searching hard after God anymore. It's situations like that that I think only, maybe only, but usually pastors understand better than most. There's a dilemma on how to pray sometimes. I would rather have people continuing having a heart seeking the Lord than I would have them physically healed and forget about God. Because knowing God is more important than being healed. But I believe in healing. <laughs> I'm glad God heals, and I certainly pray for healing. But those are the kind of dilemmas that are bigger picture dilemmas, and they're the dilemmas of bigger purpose. And I believe in this situation, a day came, and as the drought came in, and that water went lower and lower, and that little trickle of a flash of, of, went to a big splash, and it went down, and the waters were par parting over it, and it changed the atmosphere of everybody who'd been at the side of that, that river talking about what if. And here they were, more drought-stricken than they ever were before, but in the middle of the drought, what happened? They rejoiced. God did do it. Joshua was here. Those stories are true. And in that place, repentance was found. In that place, hope was found. And maybe soon after that, the rains came, filled the water back up again. We need to have those kinds of markers in our life. They need to be real. They need to be powerful. Because look what happens in verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. They camped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they had taken out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, saying to the Israelites, When your children ask their parents in time to come, these are your grandkids, what do these stones mean? You shall let your children know. Israel crossed here over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you could cross as the Lord your God did just at the Red Sea. And he dried it up for us that we crossed over. And he did this so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. One of the fascinating things here for me is that when God is doing stuff like that, as much as he loves us individually, he loves the whole world enough that it's not just about us. It's about others as well. And so when we have those opportunities, when we have those moments, we have those crises, and God brings us through them, we need to find ways to mark them and to use them in the future. Use them in telling other people about the hope that we have in the Lord 
and that he can be here for you. Use them about speaking up to the enemy who says, are you kidding? I'm serving the God who got us through the wilderness and the Red Sea and the River Jordan. He's still with me. You ought to be afraid if you're coming after God's people. Those truths become powerful truths. And they're truths that we need to continue to shepherd. We need to hang on to. If you don't have stories like that, let me challenge you to dig deep. Talk to people who you're connected to about their stories. Talk to your pastor about stories of what's happened in the history of this fellowship. Talk with old-timers. Talk with people wherever you go, and you will hear them again and again. I just finished two weeks of family camp. First week at uh, Lost Valley, second week at Flahola. And one of the great things about family camp, there's so many, is that there's always a number of old-timers who want to tell the stories. And they want to look around the camp and say, well, I remember when this was here and that was, and I remember when Brother So-and-So over here. And, and I love it. Some people, you know, their stories get kind of overwhelming a little bit, but these are people who went through it. I want to hear their stories. I want to honor them by listening. And I want to ask a question and say, what about, I'm going to hear those voices perk up and see those eyes light up a little bit more and say, you really want to know? I said, yeah, I want to know. Remember at Fahola, the old timers talking about we had a problem with an air conditioner broke down, and one of them said, Air conditioning? When I was a kid and I came to boys' camp, and they went on with the story. When we arrived, there weren't any mattresses. They had a straw wagon over here, and they all gave us these cloth bags. We had to pack our own mattresses. Zip it up and sleep on the straw. Air conditioning. <laughs> you know, are they here to seek God or not? You know, and I said, you know, they're a different crew. Air conditioning helps them seek the Lord. Uh, you know, we're not as tough as you guys were, uh, but God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. We need those markers. We need that place. We need those things because we tend to forget. We tend to get distracted. The further away from it, we, we think things have changed. That's why every time you look at your wedding band, you need to remember your first love. Maybe there's been a whole lot of water under the bridge and all kinds of stuff gone on, but you need to remember, I made an oath before the Lord and before you. Some people say, oh, I just don't love him anymore. Well, tough. Start loving him again. Love isn't a disease you get and get healed of. It's a choice you make and stick with. It's a choice you make. Keep making that choice. God didn't love you because you were so lovable. He loved you because you needed love. Sent his son to die. To say, I love you this much. Let's pray. Lord, every time we look at a marker of your love from a, a cross to a baptism, to holding communion cup in our hands. We have an opportunity to focus. We have an opportunity to look back so that we can see clearly ahead. Lord, help us to resist the age of cynicism. 
where everything is made fun of. And everything is unimportant because we have a generation who hasn't lived through any of it and don't understand how valuable it is. Lord, it's up to us to make those values fresh and new. And to do that, Lord, we need your Spirit's power. We need daily quickenings of your Spirit. We need to be able to say, Lord, just as you were with Moses, just as you were with David, just as you were with Jacob, just as you were with them, you're with me. Just as the disciples trusted the Lord, just as they gave their lives confessing your resurrection, just as the people of God made those journeys, made those treks, had those crises, Lord God, I am now one of those people. Help me, Lord, to take up the cross. Help me, Lord, to live in the now with the foundations that are so great and so rich for us. Lord, help us to mark those places, to mark those times. One of the most important barkers for me, just look up a second here for a moment, is I told you that uh, I grew up in church, but and I knew it all to be true, but I also knew that I wasn't ready to commit to it. And uh, I was tricked into going on a missions trip. Um, my pastor had worked with the Apache Indians in Canyon Day, Arizona, before he became pastor. And so he set up this trip, and we were going to go for three weeks to Canyon Day, Arizona. Um, near White River and and uh, live on this Apache Indian reservation and um, help them. So every night there were revival services. Every morning there was vacation Bible school for kids. And every afternoon we worked painting or doing something, serving. I didn't want to go. I wanted to play football. And my pastor came to me and says, you know, I noticed, Junior, I don't have an application for you to be part of the team. And I said, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm really not going. I've, I've got to work hard on my punt snap, and we've got a big season coming up, and, and we're not, I'm not going to go. And, and he said, oh, that's really too bad. He says, I've got 13 girls and no guys. And I went, hmm. And I knew some of the girls. Hmm. They said, we really need you to think about going. So I had to write this little application about why I went. Thank God for a pastor who saw beyond my notes. I, I wrote down, I've never seen a real Indian or a cowboy. And that's all I wrote. <laughs> that's why I wanted to go. And they took me along. And we had to memorize scriptures so that we could pray with people at the altar. We did all this training and all this stuff. And, and I remember arriving there, and when we arrived, the missionary, uh, his name was Gilman, came up and he said, we, we need to get inside the, the ch church here really quickly. Uh, the, the, the reservation is really unsettled right now. He took us in and he told us a story that this lady who had accepted Christ and was coming to the services her husband was involved in a leadership in, in native religion, whatever it was, and that, that um, 
he told his wife, if you go to the white man's church again, I will kill you. And she says, I, I got to go. It's life, and you need to come with me. And she went, and he killed her. And he killed her in the church. And I thought, let's go back to Chicago where it's safe. And the missionary said, you'll be okay. You weren't a part of it. But her brother has killed him. And his brother has killed him. And so it's a very tough time to be here. So we need to make sure that you don't leave the building unless one of us are with you. And I'm thinking, we're going to be here three weeks? Oh, my goodness. Second night of the services, three young Apache boys came forward. My pastor said, go and pray with them. And I said, me? You know, you're the pastor. You go pray with them. No, no, you go pray with them. So I went up. It's just over on the side like this. And I said, are you guys sure you want to do this? People around here get killed for becoming a Christian. The great evangelist. Thankfully, there was a culture and language barrier, and the young man thought I was challenging his commitment, not trying to talk him out of it. <laughs> and he looked me right in the eye, and he said, if you have nothing worth dying for, you have nothing worth living for. Holy Spirit hit me like a ton of bricks in that moment. And I said, good answer. Let's pray. And as I prayed the prayer of faith, it was as much for me as it was for them. I don't ever want to forget that. I want to mark that. I want to tell that story whenever I have opportunity because I forget. I drift off course. I get involved in the junk of church administration and goofy people. I don't want to forget why it's all about. I hope this morning that you remember why you're here. And if you don't have a memory, maybe not as graphic as that, but a reason why you decided to follow Jesus, then maybe this morning you need to mark it. Father, Lord Jesus, we come to you with hearts full of gratitude and thanksgiving that although you are holy God and eternal, you invade normal, unholy places and make them holy. You come to simple people and do profound things. Your word is true. If we confess our sin, our need for you, if we embrace you in your fullness, you make us into new people. And not just forgiven people, Lord. You make us into your children in a special way. You make us partners in the kingdom of God. You make it available for us to be empowered and gifted in your spirit and to be fully participants in the joy of the Lord. Father, if there's anybody in this place who needs to make that marker here and now today, Lord, I ask that they just pray with me this simple prayer. Would you all join me so that 
if there is that truth for someone, they can know that they're in the midst of those who support them. Dear God, I need you. I need to mark this day. This is the day the Lord has made. It's my day to commit to serving you. Forgive me, Lord, for all the stuff and sin in my life. Help me to get that completely out of my life. Set me free in places that I was in bondage. Give me a new mind and a new spirit. I want to trust you, Lord, with all my heart. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand with me. And let's just give the Lord thanks, shall we? Open your mouth, let it flow. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord God. I love, Lord God, the stories of how our lives have begun anew in you. I love the ways, Lord, that we can make memories those markers, stories those markers, and sometimes places that we can go back and visit and we can say it was right there. God got a hold of my heart. It was right in that place so that we can tell others, especially, Lord, that third generation who's a little far removed. <coughs> pray for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. We pray for those that surround us, Lord, that we really will be light and salt in powerful ways. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Everyone says... Amen. Amen. God bless you. I would appreciate the week ahead if you would be praying for a couple things. Our, our children's camp and all starts at Lost Valley and uh, all of the numbers coming in, we had to bring up um, 50 beds in order to make room for everybody that's coming and uh, pray that everything works well for that. And beginning tomorrow at, at, at Fahola, we have over 400 uh, sophomore juniors and seniors who are showing up, plus all of their people to take care of things. So every possible bed and cot that we have there is packed and full, and it's going to be a great week where some people are going to have a marker that God did something in their life. Amen? Thank you. Appreciate it.